in every generation, there is a battle over the authority of the Word of God, the preeminence of the Word of God, what is the Word of God, and everyone has an opinion on it. In every generation, this is a new issue. This isn't new in our era. It's not like we popped out of the womb and suddenly everything went chaotic and haywire in regards to the Word of God. We are not in a special generation that for some reason is uniquely poking at this. We have an erosion of the Word of God. And one of the reasons that it's happened is because in Christianity, those that would typically stand for truth unbending have been duped in our generation. And they are inviting in ideas that are undermining the very fabric, the very structure, the very rock-like substance that we're supposed to build our life on. And I am upset about this. See, it's easier for me to talk to adults than it is to kids. I, I don't know exactly how to do that yet. I know how to talk to Hudson when I'm by myself, but like the, the kid thing, I'm really interested in learning those. So you're going to see me keep trying, even if I look like an idiot the whole time, okay? So I'm going to keep practicing. I am so passionate about the Word of God. How can we trust the Word of God? It's one of the greatest questions in our day and age. One of the number one reasons the emergent church is even gaining traction in this world is because Christians today do not have an answer for why we can trust the Word of God. It's a good question. Just ask yourself. If someone comes up to you and says, how come you think we can trust this Word, this Scripture? How do you know it's not just men's opinions? Because Brian McLaren says it is. He says it is merely the words of men that just happen to be godly words, God-endorsed. In other words, he's not trying to diminish them, is he? Because he's still saying they're godly, and this is God's heart, but they aren't God's words. One of the key things that Scripture tells us about itself is that we must receive the Word of God as if it is, in truth, the Word of God. You can't do it both ways. You can't treat something as the Word of God, but, oh, well, it's really not the Word of God. Because it changes the way you approach it. If you think of it as merely the opinion of men, then that's all it is. And it's one more opinion. Oh, and who, what's your opinion then? Mm, let me weigh that against your opinion. Whose opinion is God's? Well, it's all men's opinions, and they all are equally valid. God has the one opinion on planet Earth that we tremble before. Every other opinion, we take it, and we measure it against God's opinion. And if that opinion doesn't look too bright and too, uh, too right next to God's opinion, you throw it out. That's Christianity. It's always been that way. We are reinventing Christianity in our very day and age. In fact, that's what the emergent church would call themselves. A reinvention of Christianity. They proudly say it, too. When we, when we I know some of you may not even know who, what the emergent church is. Some of the, those of you that have hung around me know how upset I can get over the issue. But it's, it's postmodernism brought into Christianity. Postmodernism has been around for quite some time, and it affected the arts, it's affected music, it's affected all sorts of things, and we have a postmodern culture. I'm not even going to argue that. And so the emergent church is basically saying, if we want to reach a postmodern culture, we must adapt the truth into a postmodern grid. And so what we are doing is we are taking the timeless eternal truth of Jesus Christ and we are adapting it to fit culture. As opposed to looking at culture and indicting it 
with the triumphant, almighty, timeless word of God and saying, any questions? You are in error. This is how the word of God starts in our life. We stand against it and guess what? We don't look too good. And it might be uncomfortable. There might be an uncomfortable prick within our soul, but that's a good prick. And if you remove the prick, if you dilute the word of God so that you no longer feel that prick, well, guess what? You won't feel the prick, and as a result, you won't change. We have removed the prick from the word of God. We have diluted it to the level where no one can feel the sharp edge of it. And as a result, no one is changing. We have churches full of people that are the same as when they first arrived in the church, except for now they're part of a community. A community of believers that believe in a diluted word of God. There is no triumph there. There is no trembling before the church of Jesus Christ anymore to say God is in their midst. What we need in this day and age is a church that bears the presence of God. And I just want to forewarn you, the presence of God is not necessarily a fuzzy, warm thing always. There are wonderful attributes of the presence of God where you understand his love and his mercy and his gentleness and his grace. But you also understand that this is the same God who entered a temple with a whip in hand because he was so zealous and jealous for his father's house. And Paul says, do you not know that you are that house? And he will not back down from picking up that same whip and entering into your life and moving out all that stands against your progress as a Christian. That is our God. And that's what scripture reveals him as. So how can we be certain? In Hebrews, one of the arguments that Paul uses in regards to laying out a case for why we have a hope that can't be shaken. His case is based on two key ideas. And that is that our God cannot lie. It's a strange statement to say, uh, well, how do you know that then? He's saying our God cannot lie. It's a simple matter of fact. And he has promised. See, most of us, this case that Paul lays out just goes right over our heads. We're like, okay, well, what does that all mean? God cannot lie, and he's promised. Therefore, when he's promised, he didn't lie when he promised. So therefore, you can take his promise and stand on it for the rest of your life and know for certainty that he will back it up. You can hold him to it. You can actually say in a legal manner to God that I must see you do this because you promised, and guess what, God? You cannot lie. We can hold this against God, technically. This is, in a legal sense, our position. And he has made himself vulnerable to that. To say, hey guys, I have given you this truth. This is my stamp upon it. This came from me. And I cannot lie. And these are promises. And if you simply yield to me, and if you obey me, and if you believe this, if you believe what I'm saying to you, your life will work and here's God saying to us, I promise. Whoa, that's not Eric Ludi promising you. That's God promising you. The entirety of the word of God is such a thing as that. It does not lie. And it gives us the promise of the fullness of the life of Jesus Christ. 
Anything you could need for life and godliness has been given you, and it's been given you on an oath. And that oath is an Eric Ludi's oath, which you might not care anything about. Who cares if Eric Ludi promised? That's the good thing about it. It's not my promise. It's God's promise. I'm just passing it along to you. But that is our surety, and that is why we have a hope that cannot be shaken, and we can be saved to the uttermost. I love that statement. We can be saved to the uttermost degree. Are you saved to the uttermost degree yet? There is more work that's needed in our lives, isn't there? But God has promised, and remember, he cannot lie, that he can and will and desires to save us to the uttermost. That should be incredible news to our souls. It should cause us to stand up and go, hey, this is good news. That is why it is so important that we have rock beneath our feet when we live as Christians. The Word of God started with a debate, with a challenge, and it will always be this way in every generation. Remember the, the statement, the Korah Rebellion? It's the, it's the name in, in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus. It goes through the story of the Korah Rebellion, where these men, these princes, these men of renown in Israel challenged Moses and Aaron and said, who are you to take it upon yourself to, to be put in this position of authority over us? We're all holy. They we're all from Israel. It's a good point. We're all holy. Why, why do you think that you're more holy? Who, who gave you this position? Now, we have a little more perspective than they did. We have all of you know, Jewish history and Christian history to back it up. It was like, I wouldn't challenge Moses. That's exactly what goes through our head. Isn't this the guy that parted the Red Sea? Isn't this the guy that uh, you know, walked up onto Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? Uh, it literally was in the presence of God. Came down and he literally had to cover his faith, face because it was shining so brightly. You know, I, I don't know that I really want to challenge this guy. I don't really have quite the substance of my own spiritual walk to challenge him and say, hey, I should be the leader of all of Israel. But these were princes and men of renown. These were ones that could take that place and say, hey, why shouldn't Israel listen to me? Why are they listening to you? It's the question of authority that every generation faces. Because the question today isn't, why Moses? It's why the word of God. Why is it that they picked these books? You ever heard that statement? I mean, who, who? It was just a group of men that wrote the books in the first place. Then it was a group of men that just randomly picked the ones that they liked. And it was a generational thing because in that generation, they were like, you know what? I really like this book. Well, in our generation, we like the book of Judas. So let's redefine the canon to include the book of Judas. Is that how it worked? Because that is what is being presented to us today. And then you have books like the Da Vinci Code that come out that mess with everyone's minds. And the reason it messes with people is because there's no foundation anymore. People have no idea why we believe the word of God is a rock. We have no idea why we should trust its origins. Why we should trust that any type of passing along of this throughout generations. Why we should accept the fact that 66 books were chosen as the canon. Why not 65? Why not 67? These are actually very good questions. And some of you are thinking, do we have to bring those questions up? Because I just like believing. It's, it's very simple. Well, you know what? If you, could be, if, if you can just maintain that childlike faith and just trust God, that's a wonderful virtue. It really is. But I want you to know that there is an answer. We do not need to waffle about. We can stand. You know, we're working on this little play area for our, our children and... Pops, 
uh, and Nana bought this whole play area, and we're going to build it in our backyard. And we have this huge sand pit. Uh, it's, it's a good name for a pit. Uh, uh, Rich was trying to dig down to get to the bottom of it so he could get to some solid ground. Two feet of sand. That's not an exaggeration. It might even be more than two feet. <laughs> two feet. Have you ever heard it? And this is a huge sand pit, too. I mean, it, it's huge. Probably, it's like as big as this room. Two feet deep of sand. I have no idea how this sand got there. But we have plenty of sand, which makes for a great illustration when you're talking about building upon the rock. Uh, but the point is, God makes it clear, do not build upon anything that is not sturdy. Therefore, build upon me. Well, you know, to be honest, God, I need a little more assuredness in this. God wants to give you assuredness. When you study the Word of God, when you build your life around the Word of God, it reveals its supernatural nature to you. There's a lot of different people that go through arguments of saying why we can trust the Word of God. They're all valid. There's nothing wrong with them. In other words, the fact that it's in perfect harmony with itself, yet it was written over a couple thousand years by men from different stations of life. You have kings and you have peasants, all in perfect agreement over thousands of years. It is an incredible statement. You also have prophecy in Scripture that literally is impossible to refute. It is extraordinary what has happened through earth's history through the word of God, where God spoke through his men that were carried along by the Spirit, and their words were validated in actual history. That is extraordinary. You have people like Josephus that literally were at, on the earth, and they were not believers in Christ, but they were able to, as historians, testify to the validity of what was in Scripture. These are wonderful attributes. One of my number one things that affects me as a believer myself, as personally, is the fact that the Bible is supernatural in its substance in how you relate with it. It has so much depth. It is so rich, has so many folds of meaning. There's so much you control out of the Word of God. You can find one scripture and be impacted, it, impacted by it when you're 20 years old. At the age of 25, the same scripture could transform your life. Then at the age of 30, your life turns upside down because of that same scripture. How in the world is that possible? That one, just a few words on a page could impact you in so many ways throughout your life. Now, those of us that are seasoned Christians know that we go through, it's like truth is just truth. It doesn't alter, but you like go through depths or gradients of it. For instance, when you first come to God, you start talking about things like giving up your life, dying to live, surrender unto Jesus Christ. And you know what you're talking about two years later? Surrender, dying to self. Yet it's a deeper version of it. And you feel like you're learning it for the first time, though. It's an extraordinary reality. Because I am still dealing with, I, I just uh, celebrated my 20-year spiritual birthday. And it doesn't mean I, I didn't know anything about it. I grew up in, in Sunday school and you know, church all those years growing up. So it, is, it doesn't mean I it was disconnected from God. I'm saying this is when I radically gave my life to Jesus Christ. It was real. And it's weird because the same things that impacted me then, I'm still dealing with those same truths. It's like gone around full circle and there I am right back at that issue of giving up my life to Jesus Christ. You'd think you could move past that. But the depths that the Word of God bring out, you realize that there is more because the Word of God knows how we are built. And it speaks. It has a voice associated with it. I don't know how it works. That's because it is a person. And it somehow studies us. And it knows us. And it speaks to our unique situation. And it says, Eric. I'm like, did it just say that? Did it just say my name? Because I could have sworn I just heard it. And it speaks right past all the 
mental barnacles and gets right through and cuts to the heart of Eric Ludi as an individual. It's like that scripture was planted there thousands of years ago just for me in that exact moment. And God knew I was going to get to it that day. How does that work? How does that work? There is a supernatural quality to this book, which is extraordinary. 66 books all combined equal what we know in Christian history as the canon, the canon of scripture. A canon is a measuring rod, which basically is like a measuring stick. A measuring stick, which is basically saying this is perfection. This is the life of God. That's what the word of God is. When we say the word of God, we always think of scripture, text. But the word of God actually attests, the scripture attests to the fact that the word of God is actually a person. And that this is useful in understanding. All this text is useful for giving us a picture of the nature of the glorious dimension of an actual person. It's like measurements for a temple construction. And Jesus said, my body is the temple. I am that temple. In the Old Testament, he says, all those things that were measured off, all those measurements, that was me. It was measuring off perfection, righteousness, the way a man ought to be. And that's what scripture is. It's a measurement of perfection. And so when Moses received that challenge from the sons of Korah. God gave Moses a solution. And he asked every one of the 12 tribes to have their chief, the leader of the tribe, give up their staff or their rod for the night and put it in the temple, in the very presence of God. And these staffs were put in the temple, and the one that would bud overnight would hallmark who God was choosing saying, this is my man, you listen to him. So God was basically, on the basis of a supernatural evidence, going to say, any questions? This is a done, decided deal. And God is the one that said, listen to him, he is speaking my words to you. So these are all men, yes. But God used men to speak his word which is a foreshadow of the fact that God would bring his word through a man to this world. Jesus is a supernatural demonstration of a message of God brought to this earth through flesh and blood man, yet he was, all of us that have good doctrine and good theology would say Jesus was both man and he was God. And I would say of the word of God, it is man, yes, but it is 100% God. It's a tension, yes, to try and reason that through. You're like, how does that work? That is how Jesus worked. And the basis of Christianity hinges on us understanding as little children that that is exactly what happened. Yes, he was born of a woman, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was both born of God and born of a woman. That is the essence of what Scripture is. So these sons of Korah challenge the 12 staffs are put into the temple of God, the tabernacle of God. And overnight, one buds. Didn't just bud, but it grew blossoms and bore almonds. That's, that's pretty incredible. Because this is a staff, which is a branch, that has been removed from an almond tree for years. It is dead. And God literally brings it back to life. 
and shows forth fruit. That's extraordinary. The testimony of something coming from death unto life and bearing fruit, it was a statement to all of Israel that said, this is my measuring stick. Moses, in the first five books, the Pentateuch, is literally the cornerstone of what we understand as canon. God hallmarked Moses. And then Moses wrote the framework for the word of God, for the, all of scripture. And then every book that was added to that canon from that point forward had to be measured. And if it didn't measure perfectly, if it didn't prove divine in its inspiration, perfect in its measurements. You know how a measurement uh, was even created in the past? You know, like you have the foot. That was a foot of a king. It was the measurements of a king. It was like his uh, elbow to his, uh, I don't know, to the top of his finger was a certain measurement. You had all these things that were based on the body of a king. Isn't that fascinating? Well, canon is based on the measurement of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't match the perfect measurements of this king, it will be thrown out. You know that the Jewish culture was actually extreme in how they treated things that were not in perfect measurement? When they were translating scripture from one manuscript to the next, if there was even one flaw, they would burn the manuscript for, for fear that that would be treated as an authoritative text. If even the king came and addressed a scribe when he was writing the holy name of God, he would ignore him because they were writing something and translating something that was literally too sacred and too precious. Before everything, every line was counted, every syllable was counted for a perfect translation or a perfect transcription of text to text. If we took Christianity that seriously and said there should be no deviation in my life, there should not be one missing jot or tittle, because this is supposed to be the parchment upon which the word of God is read in my day and age, my life. I'm supposed to be a living epistle. I'm supposed to be an extension of that canon. I'm supposed to be measured against it without fault. Now, if any of you are feeling very uncomfortable with being measured against the perfection of canon, I want you to realize that that's what Jesus was. All of the Old Testament, these 39 books, were stacked up to prove the perfection of the Messiah. He had to match it perfectly. If he deviated even the slightest bit, you know that what the canon that preceded him said? He could be stoned as a false prophet. If anything, he said, if he was part Messiah but then part fraud, if he failed at even the slightest degree, then he could be stoned according to their law. And they would have been just in doing it. It doesn't matter if it was God. Because God set the precedent. He's the one that spoke and he cannot lie. And so he had to fulfill it to perfection. And when Jesus came, he modeled. He was measured. He showed the perfection of canon. He was measured against the very same thing he created. And he came out perfectly in the measurement. The books of canon, the 66 books of canon, have all been proven through the canon test. And it is not an easy test. The reason the Apocrypha is not included in the Jewish canon or in the Evangelical or the Protestant canon is because it does not measure perfectly. It doesn't mean that it's not good, noble truth. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's shoddy in its writing. It has to do with the fact that it is not perfect in its measurement. There are variances in the Apocrypha that contradict the Old Testament. And as a result, the Jews rejected it. 
it wasn't a hard decision for them. It could be a good book, but it's not canon. Just because they're not considering Eric Ludy books canon, I shouldn't be offended. They do not, they're not perfect. They cannot match the divine measurement. There are only certain things that can do that. And those are the books that fill up the word of God. That is something when you begin to look deeper into it, and I have a whole teaching on it in, in our school where I go through the formation of canon, the origins of scripture. It's extraordinary. It builds faith. Very rarely do we think of looking into those things as actually being encouraging. Most of us are afraid that if we look into the history of the word of God, we're going to be disillusioned. We're going to find out that one thing that is going to undermine our spiritual life. The exact opposite happens. You study it, you look it square in the face. God isn't afraid. If he has something to hide, well, then we should question him. It's like, oh, what are you hiding over there, God? He's like, oh, you don't want to look over here. You know, hey, what's that over there? There's a storm. God has nothing to hide. And he feels free just opening it all up and saying, question me. Ask any question. I love an eager student. Search the word. Test every voice you hear. Learn to trust my word. Learn to realize that I tell the truth 100% of the time. And when I have given a promise, you can take it to the bank. God wants to establish under our feet a rock. A rock so that we can stand firm. When Leslie and I are going through difficult times, one of the terms we use is we need the rock underneath our feet. In a certain issue. We need to know what God's promise is in that issue. And so God, we come before him, we say, God, show us through your word where you stand in this. Because I don't want to stand on something and be grabbing a hold of heaven for something that he's like, no, 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 you got it wrong there, Eric. But if he says, Eric, I've promised, and I cannot lie, go after it. If you're under the thumb of sin, say fear has you down, and you cannot get out of it. You find yourself going into anxiety attacks you know, periodically throughout the week. And you're like, this is miserable. Well, you know what? That You could get a rock underneath your feet on that. There's all sorts of good rock stuff to stick under your feet in the, in the arena of fear and anxiety. How about this one? Be anxious for nothing. You know that if God ever gives a command, you also can take it to the bank that he will equip you? That means it's a promise indirectly. If he says you need to do something, that means that he's also going to give you the artillery to be able to do it. He's not going to call you to something and then just say, well, figure it out for yourself, bucko. He is going to give you everything you need, and it's, so an, it's an indirect promise. If he's going to command something, you know that he will also equip you for it. He cannot call you to live holy and perfect as he is holy and perfect without giving you the means to do it. So you go to your God and you say, God, I am not living very holy. I am not living uh, uprightly. I am not pure in heart, yet you command me to be. So Lord Jesus Christ, I am going to seek you. And I'm going to hold you to this. That you are a God who has promised and you are a God who can perform that which he promises. That is the rock upon which we stand. And I tell you what, it's powerful. When I get a rock under my feet, because I've, I've dealt with issues where I don't quite know, those are miserable. Yeah, I've been there. It's like, I, don't, I just don't know where God comes down on this issue. But when I get that rock, then it's like nothing stops me. I turn into a maniac in the prayer closet. Because I know that I'm in agreement with the word of God. 
And I know that then I have a direct contact with the king of heaven. And I have a legal, legal hold upon his character, upon his nature, to ask him to move in this situation. That gives you so much strength when you realize he cannot lie and he's promised. And he delights to respond. He's not saying, oh, great, they figured it out. He's not bemoaning the fact. He's saying, yes, that's what I'm looking for, faith. I'm looking for men and women who believe what I say and are willing to build their life around it. I have a list. Is that my notes? I brought some notes up with me. I know it. Uh, <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> I don't need anything, uh, Janet, so this is fine. Yeah, I'm just, I know I brought notes up. That's what's so weird. Uh, <clears throat> but the sacred text. Now, this is, I'm just going to blaze through this. Oh, there, hey, thanks, buddy. Here, you want to switch? I'm going to blaze through this. What I'm doing is I want the word of God itself to speak to you about how you are supposed to relate to it. This isn't Eric saying how you should relate to scripture. This is what the word of God itself says of how you should relate to what is known in scripture as the word of God. In Isaiah 66, it says that we should tremble at it. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that God basically is saying, you hold such reverence and such esteem for my word that literally when it speaks, you tremble. Is this the state of your soul in relationship to the words of scripture? Most of us test and approve scripture according to our own likes and dislikes. It's like, you know what, I don't really like it when Paul starts veering off on topics like that. You know, that sort of offends me. That's not trembling at the word of God. You're asking God to tremble at your good opinion. As if he's going, you know what, I didn't think that through. You know what, that's a good point. You know, if I didn't have you down there critiquing me, I don't know what I would do. That is pride and arrogance at the highest levels. To tremble is to take a lowly position in approaching the word of God. To say, it's right, I'm wrong. And I don't care how many times I've stood in front of people and said these words. If God contradicts it, then I immediately agree with him. Without question. I just say, you're right, God. I'm wrong. That's where it goes. It starts, as, it's so basic as that, is to take a lowly position to the word of God. God says, this is who I esteem. Th those that are poor and of co a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. We're supposed to receive it with all readiness and search it daily. That's what the Bereans did. And so therefore, it's a command within scripture of how, it's a pattern for how we too are supposed to approach it. We're supposed to receive it in much affliction. Knowing that when the word of God comes, it defeats the flesh. And we receive it in a full understanding of that. That we are approaching the word of God, which is to correct everything that is wrong with us and to straighten us out so that we can become as we ought to be. And we receive it knowing that, even though there will be much affliction in that. We receive it as it is in truth the word of God. By the way, I've given you the scripture references on this. I took out you know, the full 
scripture references, which would have been nice for you, but then it would have been a lot of pages. Uh, so this is your simple one. If you want to go home this week and just do a study on this, get all these scriptures out. Just paste them in one Word doc and then just begin to meditate upon them and say, this is what God says about his word. We're supposed to receive it gladly. Is that your attitude? Are you receiving the word of God gladly? We're supposed to keep it, follow it, bend to it, and revere it. We're supposed to treat it as precious. This is precious. We're supposed to let it always reside on our tongue. We're supposed to let it perform that which it promises. Let it build the temple. Let it be verified in our life and let it bring us the rest of God. We are to conform to its pattern for carrying the holy presence of God. There is a way that you bear the Ark of the Covenant. There's a way that a priest was to bear the Ark of the Covenant. Well, there is a way that you are to bear the holy presence of God in your life. And scripture is what teaches you how that is to work. When God is speaking to the priest, he says, this is how you carry the Ark. You know who he's speaking to indirectly? You. He's speaking to you about how you should carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is the very holy presence of God. Do you not know, I will repeat what Paul said, that you are the temple of God. And what resides in the temple? The presence of God. And you are the bearer. You're mobile. You have feet. God took that into account when he filled you, is that you would be mobile and carrying this very Ark of Covenant. Be, you're supposed to be always mindful of the word of God. Abide in its reality. Live in the shadow of its sublime truth. You're supposed to praise it and trust it. You're supposed to publish it. You're supposed to listen to it. Heed its every utterance. You're supposed to allow it to try your soul, purify your heart, and prune your life. You're supposed to hide it in your heart. Cherish it in your innermost being. Protect it as your most sacred possession. Get this one. You're supposed to never forget it. One of the things that I've noticed in my spiritual growth is that when I was younger in my spiritual life, God would speak things to me. I would get things out of his word, things that would change me. And I assumed that since God spoke them to me, he would keep reminding me of them. Because obviously he went out of his way to share that with me. And so I would just sort of mosey on my own way and I would forget it. Years later, I might listen to one of my old messages or see my journal and I'd be like, whoa, that is it. That is an important truth. And it's like it just went in one ear and out the other. What good is truth if it doesn't stick? In Proverbs it says, the strong man retains his riches. Are you retaining your riches? Because God says that you should never forget it. That sounds like something is on you in this process. In other words, you need to have a wall up so that the things that come in don't just go right out. I always say, you're supposed to put up a garrison. After you clear out the enemy, you put a garrison on the borders. Why? So that the enemy can't come back in and take the land. When you get land in Israel, when you take the promised land, you keep it. You don't take it and then say, well, we did it, God, and then retreat back into the wilderness. You take it and you set up garrisons about it. And you say, this is what God has given me. He's entrusted it to me. I deal with my family that way. If God gives me a child, I take it seriously. I monitor that new gift that he brings in. I don't say, you know what, I already have three. I don't know what I'm going to do with four, so we'll just let that one sort of hang out. You put up a garrison about it. You include it in your ever-growing fortress of truth that God is establishing within you. Never forget it. You're supposed to be quickened by its power, its grace, its majesty. I love that. You're supposed to allow it to be your strength. 
For how many of us is the word of God our strength? For most of us, it's our concern. We're like, oh boy, that is intense stuff in the word of God. Oh, it makes me feel so uncomfortable. It's supposed to be our strength, which means it gives us confidence in battle. When we walk into this earth, we know where we stand because we stand on the word of God. It doesn't matter if all the nations turn against us and they say, you, Eric Ludi, you are the problem. Recant. If I'm standing on the word of God, guess what? It's my strength. Athanasius, remember the story? He's the only one that stood against the Arian heresy in his day. The only one. Now, I'm sure there were little small peasant level people that were. But in the leadership class of the, of, this was literally Constantine, who we all brag about, saying, well, he was a Christian. Yeah, and he actually came up to Athanasius and said, will you not recant? Everyone in this world is against you, Athanasius. And he says, then Athanasius is against the world. And that's where the famous statement, Athanasius contramundum, came from. It's because he had strength beneath him. He had a rock beneath his feet. How else could someone stand when even the emperor, you know that Athanasius was exiled five times? Exiled five times because he refused to bend. You know, it's a lot easier if you just say, you know what? The subtle difference between what Arius is saying and what I'm saying, it isn't that big of a deal. If I could somehow save myself from being exiled five times, I may just want to say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. But he had strength. He treated it as if it was, in fact, the word of God, that it was divine, that it was supernatural, that Jesus himself was actually in substance God. We take it for granted because it's just part of our creed now, but that came from a man who used the word of God as his strength. We're supposed to trust in it. We're supposed to hope in it. We're supposed to love it and delight in its purity. Love it. Love the word of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? To love, to just be with the word of God and to spend time in it. If you don't have that incredible uh, rush in, in your experience with the word of God, keep pressing. Ask for it because it's very real. Meditate on it. Let it be the joy and rejoicing of your heart. Let it be your sustenance, the food of your soul, the life of your being. That is the command of Scripture. I'm not saying love it because I think you should. I'm saying God says to love his word. Isn't that a strange commandment? Love my word. Because he knows that that is the way you ought to be. When you are properly oriented towards the word of God, you love it. Now, I know I said this before, but Jesus is described in the New Testament as the Word of God. Now, that can be a little strange because we have understand the Word of God to be text. But then in the New Testament, this idea begins to come forth, starting with the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. So it's a person? The Word of God is a person? You know, if you study the Old Testament, a great study for you. I, I highly encourage it. Go through the concept of the Word of God in Scripture, and you'll realize how many times it is described with a personality. The Word of God came unto this prophet. It's strange because, you know, the Word of God, it's like moving. It's doing things. It's speaking. It's acting. It's a person. Jesus Christ did not originate. This is a good New Testament doctrine here. He did not originate when he was conceived in, in Mary. 
That wasn't his beginning. It says that he created the worlds, that he was before all things. Jesus, the word of God, was actually the one that inspired the entire formation of the text. He's the one that came unto the prophets. He's the one that told them about the one that would to come, one that would come, the Messiah. How would he know so much? He was it. He was the one preparing the way in their souls to understand who he would be. That is why there is no variance in scripture. Because the same one has been orchestrating it throughout. He didn't just show up and say, oh, I need to match all that. God, what'd you do? This is really hard. It was him the entire time describing who he is. It wasn't difficult for God to just be God because he is God. It wasn't difficult for him to match Godness in the description of what Godness would be because he is that. But no one else could imitate it. He created an impossible standard. And then he did it. Now here's what I want you to realize. This is extremely profound. Jesus is the word of God. In other words, all of scripture is an enunciation of his person. So he is the word become flesh or become human. He acted it out. He lived it out on earth. He showed us what it was in living substance. So I want you to follow the logic here. He's not just scripture in the flesh. He is all the different parts and expressions of scripture. He is the law of God become flesh. The perfect righteousness of God become flesh. He is the history of Israel. I want you to study this. It's extremely profound. He's the history of Israel become flesh. Oh, I mean, he even came out of Egypt and he crossed the Jordan. He was baptized in the Jordan. He goes from the wilderness to cross the Jordan into Israel and his ministry commences in the promised land. There's extraordinary pictures. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the temple of God. All these things. Why was God doing this? Creating this elaborate culture. What was he doing? He was showcasing a person. He is the Psalms become flesh. He is the wisdom of God in Proverbs become flesh. He is the prophecy of God become flesh. He is the entirety of it become flesh. So I want you to realize that all of these things we read before, which we were talking about, because our mind immediately goes to it, the text of Scripture, of how we're to relate to the text of Scripture. And it's accurate. That is what it's talking about. But it has a deeper understanding, too, for a Christian. And that is that we are relating to the Word of God, not just as text, but as a person. Because Scripture is merely a treasure map. It is not the treasure. It is the treasure map that leads us somewhere. God isn't just saying, treat it as precious, because all I care about is that you will have text. He's saying, treat it as precious, because it leads you to someone. It leads you to me. Every word within Scripture is precious. It is true, because it shows us who he is. And if you take any portion of Scripture away, it's like taking your treasure map and trimming off the portion you don't like. I don't want to go through that brambly bush. No, I don't want to go through the mud. And so we cut it out, and guess what? You don't find the treasure. You can't just trim off portions of the treasure map because they don't fit your design, your likes and dislikes. You keep the treasure map intact, and you follow it to the nth degree because if you don't, you miss what it's about, which is Jesus. 
Who cares if you have a treasure map and you memorize the whole thing if you never get inside of it and live it? What good is it to have a treasure map if you never go on the journey to find the treasure? It's a good question. How much value is that treasure map to you if you never get the treasure? The only value a treasure map has is it's the equivalent of the treasure that it leads you to. That's why they're valuable, and that's why pirates kill each other over them. It's because they want the treasure. But this word of God is without value to us. If it doesn't lead us to Jesus Christ, if you're one of those good Christians that has all the scripture memorized, but has refused to take one step forward in obedience and yield to its power in your life, and to say, Jesus, you asked me to die to self, you asked me to pick up my cross, here's my life. Instead of saying, have you ever heard the scripture about picking up your cross and following Jesus? But then not doing it. Who cares if you could say it's 10 paces to the left, one jump over a little pond. I mean, who cares if you can give perfect directions of how to get to the treasure if you yourself have not gotten into that reality of living for Jesus and gone after it. Because that is what scripture is all about. So I want you to realize that every command in Scripture of how you are to treat the Word of God in text is also a command of how you are to treat the Word of God in person. So listen to this. And I want you to measure yourself in your relationship with Jesus Christ against this list. Is this how you relate with your King? We are to receive Him with all readiness and search His heart and mind daily in order to serve him better and much love. Sorry, I just forgot the, the first one on the list. We are to tremble before him. Isn't that a great statement? We are to tremble before our king. The fear of God. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holiness. In him is not a speck of the flesh. Is not a speck of the world. And that is the one whose presence we enter it should cause us to tremble, to realize that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. It was a fairly small lie in most of our opinions, too. We're thinking, you know what? It wasn't that big of a deal, was it? To the Holy Spirit, it was. And to us, it better become. Because that is the nature of our God. It doesn't matter if Ananias and Sapphira are falling over dead in our day and age. We must live as if it should be true. We must live as if the living God were to come upon our midst as a body, that that would happen again. Because the God of the Bible doesn't change. He's, there in him is no shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Rocks don't change shape from generation to generation. They are the same, and every subsequent generation takes shape around them. We tremble. We receive, it with all, we receive him with all readiness and search his heart and mind daily in order to serve him better and love him more. We receive him in much affliction, knowing that when we bring Jesus Christ into our life, we will be persecuted. We will be, and we do it with joy. We receive him as he is in truth God himself. We receive him gladly. We keep him in the center of our heart, follow him, bend to his way, and, re and revere him. We treat him as precious. We let the gospel of his kingdom always reside in our tongue. We let him perform that which he promises and let him build us into his temple. Let him be verified in our life and let him bring us the rest of God. We bear the holy presence of God in the same manner he did. We're always mindful of him, ab abide in him, and live in the shadow of his wings. We praise him and trust him. 
We publish his life by demonstrating his power at work in us. We listen to his voice, heed his every utterance. We allow him to try our soul, purify our hearts, and prune our lives. We hide him in our heart, cherish him in our innermost being, protect him as our most sacred possession. We never forget him. We are quickened by his power, his grace, and his majesty. We allow him to be our strength. We trust in him. We hope in him. We love him and delight in his purity. We meditate on him. We let him be the joy and rejoicing of our heart. We let him be our sustenance, the food of our soul, the life of our being. Look at this little quote at the end. The word of God, the way you handle it in text is the way you handle it in person. Just ponder that as a concept in your life. To realize that the reason we respect the word of God in text is because we're setting a template of how we're respecting the person of Jesus. We revere it, we tremble before it, we treat it as if it is in truth his word. And by tr showing value and deference to it, we are showing value and deference to the one who built it and the one it defines. It's showing us who he is. Therefore, we treat it as the most precious thing. It's the map to discover him. It's the map for this generation to discover him. Christians throughout ages and generations have died to protect the words of Scripture. Not just Scripture, the words, the particular words of Scripture they would die to protect. Why would you do that? Well, ask the same thing to Athanasius. Why would you care so much about such a slight variance of doctrine? Why does it matter that Jesus was actually God in substance? Why, why is it that big of a deal? Because if you start to veer away from the word of God, you lose your rock. Suddenly you have a Christianity that is built upon shifting sand, and when the storms of life come, it will fail you. God says, I'm interested in building a church who can stand, who can be strong for me, who can represent what my truth actually is in this world. There's only one way to do that, and that's to get to the word of God and treat it as if it is, in fact, his words. That's where I stand, and that's what truly makes me strong in my life. That is the secret to strength. Jesus is a rock. I had a song go through my head when I said that. Uh, at family reunions, I remember singing, Jesus is a rock and he rolls our blues away. A really bad song. Please don't ever do that song, uh, Ben. <laughs> Jesus is a rock. And yes, he does roll our blues away. <laughs> but he does so much more than that. He establishes our feet in this dying, decadent world, to live differently and to be strong in our difference. I was speaking to a group of high schoolers this week, and I said that one of the statements of A.W. Tozier was that God has given us a promise in the gospel, and that is that we can be free from the tyranny of public approval. If you want it, you can be free from what other people think of you. We're actually afraid to give that up. Because the fear of what other people think causes us to live more normal. And we look more respectable. If we suddenly didn't care what other people thought, we might start wearing camel skin loincloths. We might start doing some wild things. You know, have you ever read the old prophets laying on their side, you know, doing weird things, eating weird things? Uh, if we didn't care, who knows what we'd become like? But I want you to look at it from a different side. 
if you don't care what this world thinks, it's extraordinary how much strength you can have in following after Jesus Christ. One of the biggest stumbling blocks is caring what this ridiculous world around us thinks. Why we care, I ha- it's a bizarre thing. Why we care, I, right when I think I'm completely rid of any care of what people think, I find a little bit of it sort of rising up. It's like, oh, I don't want, I'd, I'd look like an idiot if I did that. Uh oh, still there. It's a purging process. But there is provision in the gospel for you to stand on that word and live it out with full freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, establish your word in our life, both in text and in person. Establish that treasure map in our life, and may we treat it as precious. And Lord Jesus, may we keep following it, every inch of it, even if it's difficult, until we find the fullness of that treasure, which we, I know, won't find until we are with you in person. Lord Jesus, may you press us forward into the image of the Son. Lord Jesus, do your work within us and set our feet upon a rock. For those that have waffled in regards to their relationship with the Word of God in text and in person, I pray that you begin to establish them tonight. Please, Lord Jesus, leverage this message into a greater faith and confidence and strength in your precious Word. I pray for these kids in here, these young people, Lord, that are hearing about the Word of God at a young age, and I pray that you'd establish them in it. I pray that they would always tremble before it, that they would always treat it as precious. They would always treat it as the treasure map which leads us unto you. And may they search it daily, and may they seek it, Lord, early in the morning and late at night. May they always have it upon their lips. Lord Jesus, I pray that the gospel would dwell in them richly. It's in the precious name of our King that we pray these things. Amen.